The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. I want to speak to you on the theme of the scriptures and archaeology. And really the question with which we shall be concerned is, what is it that leads us to believe that the Bible is the word of God? By archaeology, I simply mean the study of ancient things, and in particular the study of the results of excavation in the ancient Near East. As you know, a great many things have been brought to light. Uh, Clay tablets have been found that have writing upon them, and ancient civilizations have become better understood. And as a result of this, the Bible itself stands out in an interesting light, And many people have reasoned something like this. The spade of the archaeologist has proved that the Bible is the word of God, and we may believe that the Bible is the word of God because archaeology has shown that that is the case. Now, I don't think that really gets to the heart of the issue, and I don't believe that our faith that the Bible is the word of God depends upon what the archaeologist's spade may turn up. We really believe that the Bible is the word of God when you come right down to it in the last analysis because of the inward testimony of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, using the word of God, applies that word to our hearts and convinces us that it is from God. We may be moved by the many evidences whereby the scripture shows that it is the word of God. There are many of these, but what finally persuades us that it is the word of God is God himself, the Holy Spirit. And I want to make that abundantly clear. Men believed in the Bible as the word of God long before archaeology became a science. And I think it is a mistaken view to give the impression that somehow we have to depend upon what the archaeologist discovers in order that we may believe the scriptures to be the word of God. The scriptures are the word of God, and we recognize that fact because God enables us to recognize that fact. He testifies within our spirit by the word that the scriptures are from himself. Now, with that preliminary statement, I want to consider then what is the relationship between archaeology and the Bible. There are those who tell us that there really is no relationship at all, that we should go to the Near East and study study these Eastern civilizations simply to discover what we can find without, (coughs) without any theories whatsoever to establish. There are others who tell us that archaeology very often brings to light facts which contradict what is found in the Bible. And there are those who say that archaeology always supports what is found in the Bible. Well, let us see what actually is the case. When we look to the results of Near Eastern excavation, we find that a great deal has been brought to light 
which has no immediate relationship with the scriptures. That certainly is true. The tablets that tell us about the reigns of certain Babylonian kings, for example, do not necessarily bear a relationship to the Bible, at least an immediate relationship to the Bible. It is perfectly true that there are many things which we might study which are interesting in themselves, but do not immediately enable us the better to understand the Bible. But I do not believe that it is correct to say that archaeology has brought to light much that conflicts with what the Bible teaches. That is not the case. Now, there are some instances where the findings of archaeology may uh, cause a, the question to be appear more complicated. And that is a different thing from saying that archaeology conflicts with what the Bible teaches. There are a few places, Sennacherib, for example, when he tells of the tribute which he received from Hezekiah, uses a different figure from what is given in the scriptures. But I do not think that there is any contradiction there. It may be that he is using a different measurement, a different standard. It is also possible that Sennacherib was laying it on a bit thick, which was the custom of many of those kings. And nobody seems to think that there is any grave contradiction there between what the Assyrian king says and what we read in the Bible itself. But on the whole, I believe that it is accurate to say that the discoveries of archaeology have indeed caused a shift in attitude toward the scriptures, have brought about a deeper respect for the Bible. And may I say also that this is true with respect to some of the pagan writers with respect to Herodotus, for example. The more we have studied the ancient Near East, the more respect we have for the documents, some of them, that come from the ancient Near East. And I think it is true that greater respect is held toward the scriptures than was once the case. Now, there are a great many things that I might say about archaeology illustrating the Bible. I think that I shall proceed this way by showing how there has come about a tremendous shift in scholarly opinion with respect to the historicity of the scriptures. I want to confine my remarks in particular to the book of Genesis. <coughs> During the last century, as you well know, the view gained ground. It didn't originate in the last century, but it gained ground in the last century that the book of Genesis was not written by Moses. Now, tradition would seem to teach that it was written by Moses, and inasmuch as it is a part of the Pentateuch, it is a part of what is called the law of Moses in the Scriptures, and there are statements in the New Testament which speak of Moses as being the author of the law, the law of Moses, Christ said, and we have very good reason for thinking that the one who wrote Genesis wrote the remainder of the law, and so the Mosaic authorship of the law has been presented as a view that is worthy to, uh, to be held as a scriptural view. I want the day after tomorrow to go into this in more detail. But during the last century, the view gained ground that Moses was not the author of Genesis that instead of the book of Genesis being a unity, as I believe it is, it was composed of at least three different documents. These documents came from different ages in the history of Israel. 
These documents were labeled by letters, letters which stood for the divine names. Thus, where the Hebrew name Elohim, God, was used, the document was said to be the E-document. Where the name Adonai was used, the document was said to be the J-document. And the other document was written even later, after the exile, and bore a priestly character and was labeled as the P-document. Now, this uh, matter of partitioning the book of Genesis into documents began, as far as I know, as early as 1711, and the first one to present it was a German scholar by the name of Hans Witte. He maintained that you had two accounts of creation. One of them was E, for the term Elohim was used. The other was J, because the term Adonai or Jehovah was used. Now, it was in 1753, however, that the French physician, Jean Astruc, wrote his book on the conjectures of the documents that Moses used when he composed the book of Genesis. Astruc, I say, was a French physician. And there may be question about his own life, but he lived at the French court in a, an atmosphere of immorality. And it was very unlikely that such a man would write a book on the Bible. The copies of his book are very difficult to obtain. I have only seen one in all of my life. In Germany, I was able to borrow one for a month, and I copied it out almost word for word. But you cannot find that book. I have been trying to get a copy of it, for Astruc had the copies bought up and destroyed, and only a few of them have existed. Now, there is a grave question as to the real reason why he wrote this book, whether he did it for the sake of religion, as he says, being very zealous for religion, or for some other reason, perhaps we can never find out. We can't look into the mind of another man. But at any rate, Astruc said that Moses was the author of Genesis, but that Moses used different documents that were in existence in his time, and he decided that he could identify these documents by the use of the divine name. Now, it is quite possible that Moses may have used previously existing documents. I think that is a likelihood. But it is an entirely different thing to say that you and I today can identify those documents. Astruc thought that the task would be very easy. And where he had the, he didn't use the Hebrew text, he used the French Bible. And where the word dear occurred, he called that the A document. Where the word l'éternel occurred, he called that the B document. But where you have the combination of those names, as in Genesis 2, 3, and 4, he found what he called another document, which he labeled as C. Then he discovered that there were apparently duplicate accounts of some events, or he thought that there were at least, and this he labeled D, and he had to go on until he had 12 documents all together. Astrup was very satisfied with this. He said that he was very happy about his results, that he had finally solved the problem. Well, the only thing was it may have satisfied him, but it didn't really satisfy anybody else. And so the German scholars took a hold of this, and they came up with the conclusion that you have in Genesis the three documents, J and E and P. 
but at first they said there were only two documents, E and J. And then they found out that parts of the J document were closer to the E document than they were to the rest of J, so they began labeling it E1 and E2 and J. And then later on, Deuteronomy was added to include the whole thing. And you had E1, E2, J, and D. Now, it was the great discovery of Wellhausen or Graf that the order of documents was incorrect. It had been maintained that E1 or E was the earliest, that E2 was the uh, next earliest, and J was about the same time, the 7th or 8th century before Christ, and D, Deuteronomy, was the latest of all. But according to Graf and others, this was not the case. E1, it was maintained, instead of being the earliest document, was the latest document. And so you had E2 and J, then D, and then E1 as the latest document, and they began to call E1 by P, or label it by P, the priestly document. So you got something like EJ, and then D, and then P. I'm sure you all, all are going to remember this. <laughs> now then, I must beg your pardon for going through all of this, but I'm working up to something. <laughs> Julius Wellhausen, who was a great Semitic scholar, an Arabist, and a first-rate Arabist, but not a man to train young men for the ministry, and a man who was honest enough to say so, he told the students, if you are studying for the ministry, he said, don't come in my classes because you won't get anything to help you. And he told the truth. Now, I may disagree with Wellhausen, but he was an honest man, and I'm a lot closer to a man like Wellhausen who came right out and said once, I think the Old Testament is a lie, but I don't blame it on God the way my British colleagues do. I feel a great deal closer to Wellhausen than I do to these men who tear the Old Testament to pieces and then say this gives us a deeper insight into God's ways with man or anything like that. Wellhausen didn't claim to be a Christian, and he wouldn't deceive anybody. He was too honest for that. And I feel rather close to him because of that. I think we could have agreed to disagree on everything and been good friends at the same time. Wellhausen made no bones about it. He did not believe that the Bible was the word of God. Now, he wrote a book on the history of Israel, and he made this statement that the book of Genesis will tell you nothing about the period of the patriarchs because the book of Genesis consists of these documents which were written hundreds of years after the time of the patriarchs. Consequently, the writers of Genesis, that is, the unknown writers of these documents, J and E, and of course P, would have known nothing about the time of the patriarchs. How much do we know about history 700 and 800 years ago? Even with the printing press, we know very little about it. And if we were to write a history of something that took place seven or eight hundred or even a thousand years ago, we could very easily fall into serious error. And think what it would have been if you didn't have the printing press and you didn't have a library with printed books to consult. If you were to write a history of events eight hundred years ago and did not have printed books as help, 
why, it would be almost impossible that you'd get anything very straight. But that is what you have with Genesis. These documents you see, written long after the time of the patriarchs, may tell us something about the time in which they themselves were written, but they tell us nothing about the time in which the patriarchs lived. Furthermore, Wellhausen did not believe in the historicity of the patriarchs. To put it very bluntly, there never was an Abraham, there never was an Isaac, there never was a Jacob. Genesis, in other words, as an historical document, was completely worthless. Now, Wellhausen wrote in a rather dogmatic style and made the statement, all scholars are agreed with his position. Well, what about those scholars who didn't agree with that position? Those who were conservative, who believed that the Bible was the word of God. What do you do with them? All scholars agree. If you don't agree, you're not a scholar. That seems to be the conclusion. Because there has been a magisterial disregard of anybody who takes the Bible seriously. And there is today. It is what the majority think that counts. And if a man does not go along with that, he may be well-meaning, but he might as well be defending belief in Santa Claus. Nobody believes these things anymore. In Germany, in scholarly circles, this documentary hypothesis, that is, this J-E-D-N-P, is accepted as the gospel truth. Nobody spends any time discussing whether or not it is true. You're just born believing it. And the same is true with the question of the authorship of Isaiah. You don't discuss whether or not the book comes from Isaiah. You begin as soon as you can talk about lisping forth words like Deutero Uzziah. It's simply inbred in people. And anybody who doesn't hold that is looked upon as somehow having missed out somewhere along the line. Well, Wellhausen simply paid no attention to those who disagreed with him. He said that all scholars are agreed. Now, that wasn't the case, of course. There were men, and one of them was a young German student of Wellhausen, a man by the name of Wilhelm Merler. He was assigned a paper in the summer semester on the authorship of Deuteronomy. And Merler began this study, and somehow or other began to think about it and didn't simply parrot what everybody else was saying, and he came to the conclusion that the only explanation of the authorship of Deuteronomy was that Moses wrote it. And Merler then spent the rest of his life writing books in defense of the conservative view of the Old Testament. And there was William Henry Green on this continent at Princeton Seminary, who wrote a number of books in reply to Wellhausen. And there was the English scholar Bagster who wrote the book Sanctuary and Sacrifice, a reply to Wellhausen. But these men were simply ignored. Now what was the Bible believer to do in a situation like this? Jesus Christ had said, Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus Christ evidently believed in the historicity of Abraham. But what were you to do? Were you simply to take the naive view and accept what Scripture said, or were you to be up to date and scholarly and accept what Wellhausen was saying? And my friends, the same type of reasoning 
<coughs> was used in those days, that is used by young evangelicals today who think they have to mimic the language of neo-orthodoxy. Neo-orthodoxy is vital and it's alive and it's full of deep insights. That's exactly the way they were talking about the views of Wellhausen when those views were propounded some 75 and 80 years and more ago. This was the latest insight into Scripture. This was a new and challenging view. The conservative view is always static. It's always dead. It's always uninteresting because there are some people that seem to think we must have something different. To have change, they think, is necessarily progress. But simply to change is not necessarily to have progress. If your change is for the better, well and good. But merely to change for the sake of changing doesn't really accomplish very much. But a great many were taken in by this theory and they accepted it. But you can see what it involved. Christ believed in the historicity of Abraham, the German scholars, followed by William Robertson Smith and men on this continent, were adopting these same views of the German scholars and saying, in effect, from Genesis we can learn nothing about the patriarchal period. Genesis is simply made up, as it were, out of whole cloth. It was a tendency writing. It was written to accomplish certain purposes at a later date. Now, Wellhausen had no business to come out the way he did because archaeology had already begun to speak. But Wellhausen had a magisterial disregard of archaeology and of Assyriology. He, frankly, would not be bothered with that. Now, a conservative in theology is usually thought to be reactionary. He's afraid of truth. He won't accept new truth when it is presented. He holds on to something simply because it is old. That's the caricature that is given. But you know... The Bible says, hold fast that which is good. And that's what the conservative tries to do. The conservative doesn't hold on to something merely because it's old. He holds on to it because he thinks it's good, because it's true. And the conservative is perfectly willing to uh, consider new evidence. But I'll tell you the ones who are not willing to consider new evidence, and they are very largely the liberal scholars. The new evidence spoils their views and their theories. It's going right on today. It is being brought out more and more clearly that there was a close tie-up between the ancient Minoan civilization and the Near East. But that interferes with a great many theories. And there are men who simply disregard this evidence today. That is, liberal scholars. Not all of them, of course. But a great many do. The conservative is not afraid. I had a man say to me, a Jewish scholar, he said, I have respect for the conservative biblical scholars because they will pay the price to learn these ancient Near Eastern languages, whereas the liberal scholars don't care about these things. Now, that may be somewhat of a generalization because there are liberal scholars that have devoted their time to a consideration of these ancient languages. But my friends, as soon as you depart from the biblical text, you've become involved in theory. If what the Bible says is not right, the only thing you can go on is a theory that you yourself have devised. Isn't that true? If the Bible says that the bush burned, and I say, no, that's wrong, there must be some other explanation, 
this is a case of St. Elmo's fire or something like that, haven't I evolved a theory and am not I setting forth my theory as the truth in the place of what the Bible says? <clears throat> now, I don't see how we can escape that obvious fact. If we today know so much more about those events that we can categorically say what the Bible says is wrong and this is what happened, we are expounding a theory and substituting our theory in the place of the Scripture. Now, that didn't bother Wellhausen at all. It should have bothered him. It should have given him many a sleepless night, but it didn't, as far as I know. It didn't trouble him in the least little bit. Why should it have troubled him? Because even in his day, archaeology was beginning to speak. The Code of Hammurabi that was discovered in the first year of this century in Susa, in Persia, this large black diorite stela, about so high, which you can see in the Louvre Museum in Paris today, was found lying out in the fields there in Persia. It was soon translated. And one of the laws on that code goes to this effect, that if a man's wife is barren and can give him no heir, he may take a concubine, and the son of that concubine will be the heir. Now that reminds you right away of what we read about Abraham and Sarah and Hagar. And I want to say that it would be just about inconceivable that someone writing 700 or 800 years later would have thought that one up and hit upon it accurately. For as far as I know, that custom was not in practice at this much later date. But now this has been a century of discovery. In the 14th chapter of Genesis and elsewhere, there, are mention, there is mention of a people known as the Horites, H-O-R-I-T-E-S. According to these German scholars, that was simply a fictitious name. There never was any such people as that at all. In 1925, excavations were made in Mesopotamia at a place which bore the name of Yorgan Tepe, that is Turkish, and it means blanket mound. And there was discovered there the ruins of an ancient civilization. In ancient times, that place was known as New Z. Now, the scholars had quite a time as to whether to call it New Z or New Zoo. That was a good question to really discuss. It was maintained that New Zoo was the nominative case and New Z was the genitive case, and they went out at hammer and tongs for a while. Now it seems, as, uh, to satisfy your curiosity, that New Z is a nominative case in the language used there, and that's probably the designation. Let that pass. All right. Who were these people that lived at ancient New Z? They were people called Hurrians, and these Hurrians are what is intended when the Bible in some places speaks of the Horites. Now we know a great deal about these people. I have heard it said that we know more about certain phases of their history than we do about certain phases of early American history. From saying that they never existed, we can now say we know a great deal about them. Now they have left a number of contract tablets. These are tablets of clay that were inscribed <coughs> with wedge-shaped writing, which is called cuneiform. 
These are business documents. And these business documents have the names of maybe 10 or 12 people on each document who served as witnesses. Now, among other things, in Newsy, a man could not sell real estate. If you wanted to obtain someone else's real estate, you had to engage in a kind of a legal fiction. You would get yourself adopted by the man who owned the real estate. He would will that real estate to you. You would be his heir because he had adopted you, and in turn you would give him a price. Now there was a man there by the name of Techiptila who seemed to have had himself adopted by almost everybody there. He took advantage of everybody and gained their property that way. There always seems to be a way to get around the law. But now suppose that a man found that he was getting along in years and he had no son, he had no heir. He could adopt someone that would serve as his steward, that would take care of him in his advanced age, that would see that he was given a decent burial, and that would in turn inherit all that he had. As soon as this tablet was deciphered, it became apparent that this was exactly what Abram had done. Do you remember after the wars with the eastern kings that the Lord says to Abram, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward, or some translated, and thy reward is exceeding great. Then Abram replied by saying, What wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? That is, I go to the grave childless. And when Abram said that, he was expressing disbelief in the promises of God, for God had promised that he would have a numerous seed. But he said, I go childless. And now the rest of the verse is very difficult to translate, but I would bring it out this way. And this Eliezer of Damascus is the steward of my house. What he meant was, I will have no heir, and when I die, this man Eliezer, my steward, will inherit all that I have. You see, Abram had engaged in the customs of the time. Now, this tablet from Nuzi also provides that if after this arrangement has been entered into, a legitimate son is born, that legitimate son becomes the heir, and there is some other arrangement made with the steward. You can see the concern then that Abram had over the heir in Genesis. Now these Newsy tablets furthermore state, even more explicitly than the Code of Hammurabi, that if the legitimate wife is barren, she may suggest that the husband take a concubine, and that concubine is not to be ill-treated. The son that is born will then be the heir. That is what Sarah did. But Genesis shows us that although that might have been a legal act, it was not a moral act, and it brought about unhappiness on the part of everyone concerned. And neither Sarai nor Hagar nor Abraham stand out in a very good light as far as that episode is concerned. But you see, he was acting in accordance with the customs of his time. Again, you remember that when Rachel sat in the tent on the household gods and would not come out to Laban, what was the reason for that? Well, according to the Newsy text, it seems 
that the one who had possession of those teraphim, those household gods, was the legitimate heir. And Rachel was concerned that Jacob should be that legitimate heir. You may have wondered also about Abram in Egypt when he says to Sarah, Say thou art my sister. Now it has just been brought to light that this was a Hurrian practice, apparently not known by other people, that in marriage, not only did the woman achieve the status of a wife, but she was also regarded as a sister. Now the full implications of this are not known. And it would seem, however, that when she is regarded as a sister, that would bring certain material benefits to the husband. The, as I say, the full implications are not known. But here is the reason why Abram spoke as he did. You see, he was acting in accordance with the customs that were known at that day. Now, I would submit it is almost inconceivable that a writer living some seven or eight hundred years later could ever have guessed at anything like this. There is too much in the book of Genesis which shows that it is not guesswork. You will remember that the wanderings of Abram for the most part were in the hill country. The cities that are mentioned have been excavated and it is shown that they were in existence at the time of Abraham. A great deal of criticism has been leveled against the 14th chapter of Genesis. We have been told by scholars who perhaps have never been in the promised land, in the land of Palestine, that the route which Abram took in pursuing the eastern kings was an impractical route. Archaeology has now shown that, that along that route was a line of force and that in taking that route, Abram knew exactly what he was doing. He was taking the very best possible route to pursue the northern kings. And if you will remember that that chapter speaks of the four kings against the five, that was the kind of arrangement that was found in particularly that time and not later, an alliance of four kings against five. This can be supported from cuneiform documents. It was in existence at that time, but not at a later time. Furthermore, the names of these kings are names that were known from that time. Not that the individual can be identified, that is not the case. But the Kidorleomer, for example, is a type of Elamite name that was known at that time. The Ketir, the first part of it, has been found on documents with another appendage uh, showing that that form of name was a name common to the time. How could someone eight or nine hundred years later ever have invented a name of that kind? The name Tido, king of nations, again, is similar to a Hittite name, Tudalius, that was in use. And the title King of Nations probably indicates that he had raised himself to a sort of chief over other groups. That sort of thing was found at that time. These men came then and warred in Palestine. Now, Abram had his 318 retainers. The word retainer is an Egyptian word and is used of just this sort of thing. The figure 318 is a remarkably interesting figure for at this particular period 
bands of about this size, approximately this size, were well known. So that now, instead of saying that this 14th chapter of Genesis is mythical and not historical, men are more and more astounded at the accuracy that is displayed in this particular chapter. When you come to the latter part of the book of Genesis, you find that there is present a great deal of Egyptian influence. Without going into that, I simply want to say that the Egyptian influence that has been manifest there has been discussed in learned writings and has shown to be accurate. It is only fair to say that there is some difficulty as far as two or three of the proper names are concerned. But I think that the answer here is that we do not know all that is involved. Genesis now has given to us an accurate picture of the patriarchal background. And the result has been that those who in Wellhausen's day would have said Genesis is not historical are now remarking about the accurate historical background of the patriarchal period. I do not know of anyone except a few who still insist on advancing theories as over against facts. I do not know of any scholar who would deny but that the background of the patriarchs as given to us in the book of Genesis is remarkably accurate. Now I think we can be grateful for that. I think we can realize that God has been good to us in bringing all of this information to light, that we might see that the book has been confirmed in so many respects. But again, I want to make it perfectly clear those who say that the background is accurate do not necessarily believe all that Genesis relates. And after all, what have we accomplished when we have shown somebody that the background of Genesis is accurate? Well, it may be that that is part of the question that we have to deal with when people come to us with problems. We must show that the statements of Scripture are accurate. But if a man simply says, I believe that the background of Genesis is accurate, and nothing more than that, we haven't accomplished very much. I may be able to sit down with somebody and say that the writings of Herodotus are quite accurate. And if I have convinced him of that well and good, that is interesting, but more than that is needed. Merely to believe that the background of Genesis is accurate does not lead a man to say that all that Genesis relates is true. And what I am concerned about is we believe not merely that Abram engaged in practices that were common to his day, but rather that we believe that Abraham lived and that the Lord appeared unto Abraham and that the Lord made promises unto Abraham. That is what we are to believe if we believe the Bible to be the word of God. And we will only come to that belief when we believe that the Scriptures are the Word of God. Then we will be willing to take into consideration all of the statements of the Bible and to believe all of the statements of the Bible. It is one thing to say, I think that the patriarchal picture is accurate. If we hold to that, then we won't fall into the errors of the Wellhausen theory. A theory, by the way, that has been largely abandoned today. But it is far more important that we realize that God did appear unto Abraham, 
that he revealed himself unto Abraham, that he made promises unto Abraham, and that Abraham's going out from Ur of the Chaldees, while it might have been part of a movement that was present at that particular day, was far more than that, that Abram went out in obedience to the command of God, that he went out seeking a city that hath foundations, that he went out as the father of the faithful in believing the promises of God, and that as he walked up and down the land he built altars where he might worship the true God, and he heard the promises repeated and expanded, Unto thy seed will I give this land, and thy seed will be as the stars of heaven for multitude. That is what we must believe about Abraham, that he was the father of the faithful, and that those promises which were made unto him found their fulfillment and their culmination when the true seed of Abraham was born, even Jesus the Christ, and that all who put their trust in Christ are the true descendants of Abraham, because when Abraham believed the Lord and it was accounted to him for righteousness, what Abraham was believing was that Christ would come and that Christ would be his seed and that Christ would be the fulfillment of the promises. May God grant that we may have like faith in God's promises. We are often told that one of the greatest stumbling blocks to the acceptance of Christianity is the presence of miracles. And how can we believe in the authority of the scriptures when the scriptures recount miracles? We are living in a scientific age, in an age in which we try rationally to explain all the phenomena of the world round about us. Those who believed in miracles were children of a previous age, before the time of science had arrived. But now we realize that there is a rational explanation for everything and we can no longer be expected to believe in miracles. Inasmuch as the Bible recounts a number of miracles, we simply have to discount, dis discount that. We cannot accept it today. We must have a Christianity that is freed from miracles. We must have a Christianity that will appeal to the thinking person of the present day. The scientifically trained mind, we are told, can no longer believe that a dead body came to life and rose from the dead. We simply must abandon all such belief. And so miracles are often set before us as an obstacle to faith rather than as an aid to faith. Now what shall we say all about this? <coughs> Well, I think one of the first things we can say is that before we actually try to answer these questions, we must ask just what miracles are. There is a great deal of talk about miracles in which a miracle is not defined at all and people simply talk in the void. I grant that it's a lot more interesting to talk when you don't know what you're talking about, but it does help, I think, if we define our terms and I think that we had better do that when we're dealing with anything as important as the miracle. Some time ago, I remember that a clergyman professed his disbelief in miracles. And one of the columnists in one of our Philadelphia papers had a whole column on the subject. Now, sometimes I entertain the rather extreme thought that 
It would be a good idea if a man didn't write on a subject when he doesn't know anything about the subject. But this columnist wrote a column on miracles, and he took the minister to task. Why, he said, why disbelieve in miracles when there are miracles all about us? The sunrise is a miracle. The springtime is a miracle. The telephone is a miracle. Yes, if you can keep it from ringing, I almost agree with that. <laughs> and all about us there are miracles, so why deny miracles? Now, I don't believe that column was very helpful, and the reason why I don't think it was very helpful was that the columnist had not the slightest idea what a miracle is. You and I apply this word miracle to anything that happens to be a little bit strange and that pleases us. Anything that we can't understand we say is a miracle. And so we talk about the miracle of television and the miracle of the jet plane and the miracle of the telephone and so on. And when we do that we are using the word in a very loose sense. Now I think we should turn to the Bible and allow, allow the Bible to tell us what a miracle is. The word miracle itself actually is not found in the original languages of Scripture. There are words that are used. The term wondrous things, Niflaot, is one of the most common in the Old Testament. The word wonder, mofaith, is used. The word sign, oath, is used in the Old Testament. And we read also of lying wonders. Signs and wonders is a common expression. But there is no word that is the precise equivalent of our word miraculous or miracle. Nevertheless, I think that from the Bible itself, we can discover what a miracle is. And I propose that we look at the Bible and there we will find that there are certain events which have certain features in common. And I want to define a miracle as one of the events that has all these features. In other words, this is a rather restricted view of the term. And I believe that it is well that we do restrict the view of the term in order that we may understand what the Bible means by a miracle. There are certain events mentioned in the Bible then which have certain features in common. Now the first of those is this. They are acts that are performed by the supernatural power of God. I want to stress that fact. To put it in slightly different terms, only God can perform a miracle. Satan cannot perform a miracle. Now I realize that there are lying wonders that Satan performs. I know full well that the magicians in Egypt, up to a point, were able to perform certain actions, which Moses also did. But these are not miracles, for there, is only, there are only certain elements of the miracle that are, that are present. Only God can truly perform a miracle. And when a man such as Elijah or Elisha does these things, we know that he does not do it in his own strength but it is God that works through him. God may use individuals to perform miracles, just as he used Moses and Aaron and Elijah and Elisha, 
but these men themselves do not have the power to perform miracles. And we need ever to keep that fact in mind. Whenever a man arises in the church who claims to be a miracle worker, I think we must beware of him. No man has the power to perform a miracle. A miracle is so grand an event that only God can perform it. Just look at the supreme miracle of all time, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and you realize right away that that was an act which only God could perform. God performs that act by his supernatural power. The miracle is a manifestation, if you will, of the power of God. And that very element is an encouraging element. That very element makes clear that God is a powerful God, that he is in control of all of his creation, that he may employ his creation as he will. The resurrection of Christ, then, is a display of God's power. It shows us that death is not all-powerful, that death did not have the strength to hold the body of the Lord Jesus. It shows us more than that, that Satan is not all-powerful, that Satan did not have the strength to keep the body of Christ in the tomb. For in his own good time, God performed this miracle. The supernatural power of Almighty God was manifested, and the Lord Jesus Christ arose from the dead. Go through the whole Bible, and you will find that every miracle is performed by the supernatural power of God. That is the first thing. Satan cannot begin to perform a miracle. The best he can do is to perform a lying wonder, something that may be beyond the grasp of man, yes, but something that is deceitful in its effects and that does not at all display the power and glory of God. That is the first point I wish to stress, that the supernatural power of God alone can accomplish a miracle. Now the second point is this. A miracle is an act performed by the supernatural power of God in the external world. And that point, I think, needs a great deal of stress. In the external world. And by that I mean in the world out there, outside of us, where we can at least see the results of the miracle with our eyes. Now let's take a few examples of what I mean. We read a few minutes ago of the miracle that our Lord performed at Cana of Galilee. There the water was changed into wine. If you had been present at that scene, you could have tasted the water changed into wine. You could have known through your senses that the miracle took place. <clears throat> I am not sure that we could actually have seen the transformation. Perhaps we could have seen that. At any rate, we could have seen the results. Or you could see the axe head float. You might not see how that was performed, but you could see that it was performed. It was an act, you see, done in the external world. And if you had been present in Jerusalem on that third day, you could have seen that empty tomb, as those did see who heard the words of the angel, He is not here, for he is risen as he said, Come, see the place where the Lord lay. 
you could have seen the place where the Lord lay. And if you had been in that tomb itself, you could have seen that dead body come to life and rise up. The miracle is performed in the external world. Now this involves a certain consequence, and I anticipate that some of you may not agree with what I want to say right now, but if what I have just been saying is true, then the new birth is not a miracle. <clears throat> now, before you rise up in objection to that, let me point out the new birth is the work of the supernatural power of God. The new birth is the work of the Holy Spirit. It is only God who can bring to life from the dead. No man can do that at all. The new birth, then, is a supernatural work. I would insist upon that as much as anyone. But the new birth is mysterious. The new birth is done within us and not in the external world. And it is at this point, you see, that the new birth differs from a miracle. The miracle is performed out there where I may see it. The rising of the raising of Lazarus, the raising of our Lord, the crossing of the Red Sea, the miracles in Egypt, and so on. But the new birth is mysterious. You remember how Nicodemus came to our Lord at night, and he said, How can these things be? And our Lord answered by saying, The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. The new birth is something mysterious. You cannot say, I am at this very moment experiencing the new birth. No, it is not external. We know that we have been born again, but how do we know it? We know that if we are placing our trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. If we are doing that, that is evidence that we have been born again. But we cannot say, I feel that at this very moment I am being born again, any more than we could speak that way concerning our first birth. The new birth, then, is mysterious. I don't want to be misunderstood on this. The new birth is the work of the supernatural power of God, but it is not performed in the external world. And hence, I think, for the sake of accuracy, it is better not to speak of the miracle of the new birth. I think that is confusing terminology. Let us exalt the new birth as the very work of God. Yes, let us give him all glory for our salvation, for he has done it all, that we know. But it is not a miracle, for it does not fit in this second point, which must apply to all true miracles. Let us go on then a little further in our definition of a miracle. The miracle is performed by the supernatural power of God. It is an act performed in the external world. Now there is another point that we should notice. In its appearance, the miracle is contrary to God's ordinary providential working. Let us take that example of the axe head. Now we know well enough that if you take a piece of iron and throw it into water, it sinks. But the Bible tells us that on this one occasion, the axe head floated. 
it did that which appears to be contrary, you see, to God's ordinary providential working. Now, I believe that a miracle is an act of providence. Nevertheless, it is an act of providence that appears to be contrary to ordinary acts of providence. Thus, in Egypt, the river is changed to blood. The other miracles are performed. The Red Sea is crossed. The quail and the manna are given. We come then to the time of Elijah and Elisha, and we find that more miracles are performed. In the time of the Babylonian captivity, further miracles are performed. But it is in particular in connection with our Lord's appearance upon earth that many miracles were performed. The eyes of the blind are not ordinarily open. The deaf ordinarily do not hear. The lepers ordinarily are not cleansed. By a word, that is. And so our Lord performed these many miracles which in their appearance are contrary to God's ordinary providential working. Now, we speak very often of the laws of nature, but I think we must guard ourselves in so speaking. What we call nature is simply divine providence. God upholds and sustains all things at every moment by the will of his power. God sustains all that he has created. He preserves, that is, he keeps as it should be, and he governs, he rules all of his creatures and all of their actions, which means that you and I cannot escape from the providence of God for an instant. He is ever watching over us. He is ever sustaining us. He is ever guiding us, and he is ever directing us. It is God who has established certain laws by which the universe is upheld. For example, the law of gravity is not a law that somehow exists independent of God. That is a part of the constitution of the universe, and it is God himself who has so arranged the universe that if I take a heavy piece of iron and drop it, it drops. It goes down toward the earth. The earth has a gravitational pull which apparently extends far out into space. It is God that has thus established the earth. That is not a chance arrangement that we can ascribe to nature, but it is the way in which God governs the constitution of the universe. Now, God is not bound by the laws which he has established. God is not subject to his creation. Now, you and I are. You and I cannot break the laws which God has placed in the universe without rather disastrous consequences. If you place your hand on the red-hot stove, why, much as you might like to break certain laws, you're not going to do it. There'll be rather sad consequences because we are creatures and we do not have control of the laws that govern our life. But Almighty God is able to work with these laws. He may at times work without these laws. He may work above these laws. He may bring higher laws into play of which we know nothing. God is not limited God is not bound by his creation. 
And so, whereas to you and me it seems incredible that an axe head should float, God, in the performance of this miracle, may have suspended certain laws, or he may have introduced higher laws, we do not know. I do not mean to say that we could not understand how God did this, had he chosen or would he choose to reveal it unto us, but nevertheless, God has not revealed these things unto us. We may simply assume that he has so worked in order that the axe head would do that which axe heads ordinarily do not do. And the supreme miracle, of course, is the resurrection of our Savior. We do not know how God brought the dead body of Christ to life because the laws that seem to be in the universe, especially as they affect men, lead to death. And when a man dies, the body decomposes. And that is the end, it would seem. But with Jesus Christ, God somehow, perhaps employing higher laws we do not know, God caused that dead body to rise, to come to newness of life. There you see in its appearance the miracle is contrary to God's ordinary providential working. And that is why I say the new birth is really not a miracle, for the new birth is an immediate act of the power of God. Now let me say a word about that immediate. Immediately doesn't mean right away, as we usually use it. Immediate means without means. And the new birth is accomplished without means. It is a direct act, supernatural act of the Holy Spirit. In the performance of a miracle, God may employ means. I am not sure that he always does that. I do not know, for example, how the water was changed into wine. God may employ means. I would not necessarily say that that is the case. There are many fine theologians who believe that all miracles are performed by the immediate power of God. I'm not sure that we can say that, but that may very well be the case. At any rate, God has control over his providence, and he may use higher laws than he ordinarily uses if he will. And so in the third place I say that the miracle in its appearance is contrary to God's ordinary providential working. <clears throat> now in the next place, the miracle is not simply a magic trick. It is not performed merely to entertain people. Rather, it is designed to be a sign or an attestation. That is a sign or attestation of God's saving power. The miracles were performed at certain times in redemptive history in order that men might know that God was the true God and that despite all the obstacles that appeared, God would accomplish his salvation. And so I believe there were four great periods of miracles in biblical history. The first of these was the period of the Exodus. This was a time when the power of God had to be manifested. Egypt was the nation that was used of Satan to hold the people captive in order that it might destroy those people. Egypt was a religious nation. The Pharaoh himself was regarded as a god. The sun was a god. There was an Egyptian pantheon, many gods. 
and it was really a contest not so much between Moses and Aaron on the one hand and the Egyptian magicians on the other, but it was far deeper than that. It was a contest between the true God and the false gods of Egypt. If the gods of Egypt could win out, then they would destroy the Israelites, and then Christ would never have been born, for the promises of God would have gone by the board. Ultimately, of course, what was in back of the spirit of Egypt was Satan himself, for this was the time when Satan would seek to show that God was only a tribal God, that God could not deliver his people. It is for that reason that the Pharaoh is raised up. With all of his power and with all of his might, he would oppress the people of God. When Moses is sent to Pharaoh to perform the wonders, why the magicians of Pharaoh begin to imitate those wonders. But they do not perform genuine miracles. For what they do is simply an imitation of what is done by Moses and Aaron. And there is a point beyond which they cannot go. For the grace of God will not allow Satan to triumph. But God displays his almighty power in the performance of these miracles. And the reason for this is, first of all, that his own people may know that he is the true God. These miracles were performed in connection with a mighty act of deliverance. For it was Jehovah, their own God, who brought them forth out of the land of Egypt. And when Pharaoh made one final attempt to regain the people and to stop them, then the waters of the Red Sea were driven back that the people might pass through dry shod, and the waters returned, and Pharaoh and his armies were drowned in the Red Sea. Thus God triumphed. Thus the miracles were an attestation that the true God was with his people. Now the next great period of miracles, I think, is found in the time of Elijah and Elisha. Here again there was need that the people know that their God is the true God. This was a difficult time. You remember that the northern tribes had apostatized. What part have we in David, they said. Thus, consciously and deliberately, they rejected the promises that had been made to David. They would say, to your tents, O Israel. They would have no more of the God that had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And Jeroboam is regarded as the man that made Israel to sin, for he established the calf worship at Dan in the north and Bethel in the south. Thus, the northern tribes apostatized. They no longer became, were regarded as the people of God or would so regard themselves. Yet there were still some that had not bowed the knee to Baal. And that very phrase shows us what actually had happened. With Jezebel, there was introduced into the northern kingdom the Tyrian Baal worship, a nature cult that was revolting and disgusting. And many of the Israelites, of course, followed after that cult. But God sent Elijah and Elisha, and these two men stand out as very interesting contrasts. Elijah is the great defender of the faith who stands up boldly against all of the priests of Baal. And Elisha is the quiet pastor who defends the faith by entering into the homes of the people 
and bringing the truth to them and helping them in their times of need. And both are always needed in the church of Christ. But at this time, when the people of God were tempted to go astray and to follow after the Baal worship of Canaan, then God performed the mighty miracles through Elijah and through Elisha. These men stand out as men whom God used to manifest his power to the nation, that Israel might know that Jehovah was not dead, that Jehovah still had power, that Jehovah was going to maintain his promises as he had said. We come then to the time when the nation is taken into exile, when the people are in Babylonian bondage, and it would seem then that they were in as bad a condition as when they had been in Egypt. Nebuchadnezzar was on the throne, and Nebuchadnezzar was a monarch. He would have all bowed down to the image that he had made. This was the time when the people of God had to compromise if they were to get along with Nebuchadnezzar. This was a time of difficulty for them. But God raised up a Daniel who purposed in his heart not to defile himself with the king's meat, who stood forth bravely. And what a lesson we should learn from that. People are always afraid to speak out because they'll get in trouble. The one way to get in trouble is not to speak out. When you speak out, if you speak courageously and courteously and you have the facts with you, people respect you and you don't have to be afraid of anybody, least of all of ecclesiastical politicians. Daniel stood out and he spoke forth and the result was that God blessed that and the grace of God triumphed in Babylon and mighty miracles were performed there by God. For just as in Egypt, so here also, the gods of the heathens were trying to destroy the people of God. The idols were being exalted, and Satan was active. But God performed miracles, and we find that again God triumphed over the, at this time of the Babylonian captivity. Now the period when Satan was most active, the period when Satan was using all that he could to destroy the work of God was when our Lord came to earth. Jesus Christ came into this world, you might say, on a wave of the supernatural. The miracles accompanied all that he did. Jesus Christ had to face the demons, and above all, he had to face Satan himself. But he performed mighty miracles and thus showed that he was the eternal Son of God and that his redemption was a genuine bona fide redemption. His disciples were convinced and many other believed the things that he had done. And then after he had risen from the dead, he showed himself alive by many infallible proofs and miracles were performed by the Holy Spirit through the apostles as the church of Jesus Christ was being established. That was the period, the climactic period of miracles in which God triumphed over Satan and in which he wrought the redemption that has set his people free. Now you see, my friends, in all of those acts, there are these things that are in common. The miracle is performed, an act performed by the supernatural power of God in the external world, 
contrary in appearance to God's ordinary providential working and designed to be an attestation or a sign. Do miracles occur today? Now that's a question on which good Christian people are divided. Missionaries come home and they tell us of events that they call miracles. People say, well, here is a miracle. Somebody has been healed. The doctors have given up. They could do nothing. And God has healed this person. And this is a miracle. Well, now you see, if the definition that I've been giving is correct, that definition applies to a number of acts in the Bible itself. But it doesn't apply to anything that occurs today. I say, therefore, that there are no miracles today. But now watch. That does not mean that there are not wonderful works today. That does not mean that God does not perform wonderful works in the external world today, even works that in appearance may be contrary to his ordinary providential working. But the plan of salvation is complete. These are no longer attestations or signs of God's saving purposes because with the apostolic age, that age is complete. Christ has come. The latter days are here. That God has spoken to us in these last days through his Son. That age is over. The age of those miracles is past. The biblical miracles are in a class by themselves. Oh, I grant you freely that God works today, that he does those things that we cannot understand, that there are healings and wonderful works that we cannot begin to understand. And let us give God the glory for them. And let us pray for those that are sick and for those that sometimes are abandoned as though there were no hope. Let us be steadfast in prayer. God may often answer our prayers and do wonderful works, but let us keep the technical definition of miracle for these events that belong to the biblical period itself. And if we do that, we will give God all glory for the many wonderful things that he has done in his church. But we will remember that the biblical miracles were unique, that they stand in a period by themselves. I have emphasized tonight, and I want to stress it again, this fact, that the miracle is performed by God. And the whole basic question is whether you believe in God or not. If you believe in the God of scriptures, then you will not have any trouble with miracles. Now, one thing that I think causes difficulty is the presence of so many spurious miracles. There are healings, supposedly, that are reported and are said to be miracles. But, my friends, one thing we can be very sure of, if these deeds are not performed in the name of the triune God, they are not miracles. Perhaps some of you have visited Lourdes. And you have seen over there at the height of the pilgrimage season how men and women are plunged into a pool near the spot where the Virgin Mary supposedly appeared to a little French girl, Bernadette. And there are all kinds of healings that are reported. Doctors who are atheistic and who are agnostic and who are Protestant and who are Roman Catholic have all signed statements, I understand, saying that unbelievable healings have occurred over there. And so we are told, here are miracles in our own day. Well, 
I don't know how to explain what may take place at Lourdes, but I'm very sure of one thing, and that is this, that the one who receives the glory over there is not the triune God, but the Virgin Mary. And Mary's not to blame for that. She would probably be the first to rise up in opposition to the misuse that has been made of her. I recall reading a tract that was written by one of the priests at Lourdes. And in that tract he told the people something like this. If you pray to God, your prayer may not be answered. If you pray to Jesus, your prayer may not be answered. But if you pray to the Virgin Mary, you can be sure that your prayer will be answered. You can see where the glory goes there. That is as unlike a biblical miracle as it can be. And many of those who talk about healing in their campaigns may use the name of Jesus, but all of the emphasis is on the minister. And you may very well wonder whether this sort of thing is really done in the name of Jesus or not. The biblical miracles are unique. Let us preserve their uniqueness. Now, do they hinder the authority of Scripture? Do they hinder our belief in Christianity? Well, I will say this. If we could have a Christianity without miracles, it would be a lot easier to believe in than a Christianity with miracles. There's no doubt about that. It would be very easy to believe a Christianity that had no miracles. But my friends, I'll tell you one thing. It might be easier then to believe in Christianity, but Christianity then wouldn't be worth believing in. If you take the miracles away from Christianity, you are simply removing the supernatural. And Christianity then is no longer worth believing in. Instead of there being a hindrance to our faith, the very glory of Christianity is the miracle. And instead of the miracles really being stumbling blocks to us, these miracles show us the glory of the triune God. These miracles show us that at the time when his people were in oppression and all before them seemed dark, when it appeared that Satan was in control of everything and all of the promises would be forgotten, then God in mighty power intervened and he showed by a grand display of works that he was the supreme God, the creator of heaven and earth, and he brought forth his people out of the land of Egypt by a strong right arm. And you and I were bound by chains far stronger than those that ever held the Israelites in bondage. We were bound by the chains of sin. We could not free ourselves. We could not save ourselves. All that we could do would simply bring us deeper into sin. We have no way of saving ourselves. But Almighty God has given us a display of power. Just as he led forth the Israelites out of the land of Egypt, so has he come and bound the strong man who held us captive. By the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross, our Lord went down not to defeat, but he triumphed gloriously, for by that, in that death he paid the debt of our sin. He offered the one sacrifice that is acceptable with God, 
and he satisfied every claim that divine justice might have against us. And on that cross he died, but he could not be holden of death. For on the third day, by a mighty miracle, by the power, the supernatural power of God, he rose from the dead and he triumphed over the evil one and he has set us free. Don't be ashamed of the miracles of Christianity. Were there no miracles in Scripture, there'd be no authority in Scripture. Were there no miracles in Christianity, there would be no Christianity. Our religion is a religion of the miraculous, of the power of Almighty God.